Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire-charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light. Go farther, stay longer. This is an extra special Loose Ends episode. In fact, we're going to call it Loose Ends, where we deal with hate mail. Um, we don't get any real hate Love hate mail. mail. No, very little hate mail. Disappointed mail. Outstanding <laughs> questions, clarifications. The one, my favorite, corrections. Where a dude will hear something, he's like, nah, 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 right. And then takes the time to write in and tell you where you're wrong. I love it. But um, there's two ways that it comes. It comes as from a person who is like, man, you know, I want to contribute to the conversation in a constructive way. And those boys should not be uh, misleading people in this way. And I feel like I'm going to do my civic duty as an engaged listener and set the record straight. There's that guy. Well, love. And there's like this other sort of feller who <laughs> just has a axe to grind. Probably spends a lot of time on Facebook writing mean messages to people. Right? First one. I'm bringing this one up. Just like, just got it today. Just came in today. What are you doing, Giannis? Making notes. Part of my job. This guy, here's what he has to say. My hunting buddy and I were watching your show while butchering a moose yesterday. Tom Habib is this feller's name. My hunting buddy and I were watching your show while butchering a moose yesterday. I'm already, I'm already hooked. I'm already engaged by this letter. And he says, we're chatting about the cast of characters that appear on the show and podcast. 
I don't want to turn this into a, if your favorite meat eater guy was a character from Game of Thrones, Harry Potter, whatever, who would he be type of thing. But there was one comparison that just leaped out at us, especially after listening to the podcast on the bear encounter on a fog neck, which is called the meat tree part one and the meat tree part two. He says, while Steve is the apparent protagonist and gets all the glory, it is 100% clear to us that he is merely the Frodo to Giannis's Samwise, i.e. the true hero of the story who just goes out there and straight up gets shit done is Giannis. So yeah, that's what this guy had to say. No, that was more just like a that was just like a f- nice fan letter. That's real sweet. Yeah, I'm gonna give that to you. There, oh, take thanks. that home. Can you put sign that, that for me? Put that in your notes. Now, can you sign it? I'm gonna frame it. Less Giannis, <laughs> less Giannis gets so full of himself. Less yeah. Giannis gets so full of himself. Thanks, Tom. Um, did you just set Giannis up to just knock him down a peg or two? No, oh, I swear to God. Okay. It's on oh, top. Of the, it's oh, on, it's coming. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's coming. It's on top of the heap. It's on top of the heap because I just printed it off this morning. All right. Still hot. Proceed. You can't see me, but I'm sitting here with a fistful of, of printouts. What happens is these come into a, an account, the contact. If you go to like the meat, eater, the meat eater.com and go to the contact thing, you write a letter. It Like I get that on one of my accounts. And I'll be like, huh, if, I, if, I, if it catches my eye, I'll be like, huh. And I'll forward it to my regular email, and there I will print it off and put it in this big giant pile of things I keep meaning to bring up. Here's another one about Giannis. Yanni's going on and on and on about how there's no difference between a 30-06 and a 300-win mag. Particularly where a guy was saying, a guy, Yanni was saying, Yanni was talking annoyedly. That's not a word, but Yanni was, someone was saying, oh, on this hunt, it doesn't matter what hunt it was. He's like, on this hunt, 30-06 ain't going to cut it. Um, you need a 300-win mag. And Yanni was going on, on and on about how there's really no difference because he's saying, what's the difference? Who really cares? If you have, it's a 30-caliber bullet, so it's .3 zero eight of an inch weighs the same amount so it's this projectile with a certain diameter and this projectile has a certain weight and it's going a certain speed and he's pointing out that you have this set thing you're talking about the same grain bullet the same weight bullet the same diameter made of the same shit What's the difference if it's flying out of your gun at 3,100 feet per second or what, Yanni? Uh, whatever, 28 or 29, a couple hundred or feet. Or 2,900 feet per second. Yeah. Um, as an addendum to this idea, I'll point out that when I was a kid, I was born at, the, at what I call the Great Awakening of the 30-06. You guys lived in the shotgun area, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, at Michigan, there's a line... At which um, there's a line across the state in the southern part of the state where if you live like north of that line, you can hunt with a center fire, you know, you can hunt with a rifle. South of that line, you can only hunt with a shotgun or muzzleloader. Do you know that, Cal? Uh, I did. I did not. You mean you weren't aware of Michigan's shotgun rifle line? No, I wasn't. Just how I, insular of a guy. <laughs> exactly. I'm not a, 
well-traveled man. There, there well, is such and, a thing. And a lot of our Midwest deer hunting states are shotgun only. But you know what? They, I, just got a, I just saw a story about this. There's some new cartridge, some new rifle cartridge that you can now use in the shotgun area. Some mm-hmm. giant, some crazy giant thing I'm not real familiar with. Some slow lobber, you right? Know, yeah, that you're allowed to use in the forty-five seventy or something like that. Yeah, right? but it is, but not, but something like that. Um. So, anyways, prior, like when I was born, everybody had a thirty thirty. It was called. It was known as a brush gun. But then, and that's all everybody had. And then right around when I turned fourteen, everyone was going out and buying a thirty out six. It was only like two guns that existed. You either had a thirty thirty. Or you were anxious about getting your thirty out six. Yes, I had never heard of most guns. When I moved to Montana, everybody had two seventies and three hundred wind mags. I was like, huh? I was packing a thirty out six. Probably soon after. That's when the short magnum craze started, right? Right about that was the first act. Yeah, first gun. I first non non old gun that someone gave to me. Gun I bought was a short mag. Um, another side note: this. 3006, all the numbers and guns mean different things. What, do, you, you, do you know what 3030 means? Yeah. 30 ca- well, originally, when it got its name, it was the, thir- the first 30 is for 30 caliber, and then the second 30 was for 30 grains of powder behind it. Okay. 3006 is 30 caliber come out in 1906, mm-hmm. introduced in 1906. So it wasn't new in 1984. Not the slightest. Well, I got a little bit of a jump on the legal minimum shooting age and, and, and uh, got a little bit of a head start on that. But anyways, whatever year I had, I was still – I was shooting a thirty two special, which was old-timey even compared to a thirty thirty. Yes, with sir. With a peep sight on it. It's a Winchester Model 94. Anyhow, this guy writes in to say – to take Yanni to task. He says – you guys talked about how the only difference between the 3006 and the 300 Win Mag is velocity, which is technically true. But the argument for the Win Mag is not velocity for velocity's sake. I didn't print this guy's name off, which is bumming me out. For an equivalent bullet weight, what you're really gaining with the 300 Win Mag versus the 3006 is increased kinetic energy which could loosely be correlated as stopping power. My old man during Whiskey Whiskey 2, World War II, my old man said that the sniper shot 30.06s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. He carried a Tommy gun. Um, and he had a, a, a BAR, I believe, and Ooh. a Tommy gun for a while. But he said there's, that was the gun. That was like the, so even back then, I don't want. I just don't want people to come away with me thinking, thinking that somehow the thirty out six became cool in the eighties. Um, he goes on to say what the formula for for uh, kinetic energy is. But here's the important part: since you're squaring the velocity, so when you, okay, I will tell you the formula for kinetic energy. Kinetic energy is one half times mass times velocity squared. Yeah. Since you're squaring the velocity, a moderate increase increase in speed provides more than a linear increase in energy. So using Yanni's 100-grain bullet as an example, 
a 300 win mag throwing that 180 grain bullet at 3,150 feet per second is putting out 3,972 foot pounds of energy. And the anemic little 3006, Yanni's little 3006, throwing the same bullet at 2,700 feet per second. So 450 less feet per second is a full thousand less pounds of kinetic energy. A 17% increase in velocity yields a 37% increase in energy. There you have it. It's not the same. No. I've been carrying this piece of paper around, waving this piece of paper in Yanni's face for months. Yeah. Wanting to bring this up. I want to go... Cuz... Oh, go ahead. Oh. Can I, I finish wanna, his letter? Yeah. Then you can, you can say what you got to say. Guy goes on to say, guy goes on to kind of wind, he winds up sounding a little bit like, like the eagle. Because he goes on to say, that's the physics of it, but does it really matter? Ask the smartest hunter you know how many foot pounds it takes to kill an elk. I think by that he means they're not going to know. More energy results in increased hydrostatic shock pressure, but good luck quantifying that as it relates to killing a large animal. There is a point of diminishing returns, and Giannis is correct to say that it is better to shoot a caliber you are comfortable with so you can make a good shot to the vitals. There is also the issue of too much energy and meat wastage. Velocity is obviously also tied to bullet drop, but that's a separate issue that can be solved with practice in a range finder. Says the odds are good. You guys already know all this. I just need an excuse to take a break from my yard work. Okay, now go ahead, Yanni. Well, I didn't. I, I think when we when I read that email earlier, I didn't catch those those last two. Where he starts sounding like you? Yeah, that was just going to be my follow up. So you were going to say the same thing he said? Yeah. I appreciate the man sign off. That was well writ email there. No, he did a good job. Yep. I didn't print his name off. I'll look up his name. Any thoughts about that, Callahan? You shoot a 300 win mag. I love the 300 win mag. Yeah. The uh, very similar. I mean, like the whole historic lineage of this is a bigger argument than just when you break it down to the numbers. I feel like because it kind of comes down to experience and what you're comfortable with and what you've seen perform well in the field. And yeah, just the difference between growing up in Michigan and growing up in Montana. Um, it, uh, you, uh, had access to different things at different times. And, and like you talk about the 30 out six coming onto the scene and what that did for hunting and the availability of, ammunition that wasn't really that great because it was all world war ii surplus stuff i don't think great for big game animals um but that could have made lifelong 30-06 fans and lifelong 30-06 opponents um which you know leads you down the path to different calibers and then there's the there's the old like well it works for me right which is hard to argue against it's very hard to argue against yes works for me Okay. 
right? Here's a guy exactly my age. He includes his age, and he's exactly my age. His name's Brian. Um, he goes on to say, it's been some years since I've really been out in the wilderness. Your thoughtful discussions with intelligent members of the hunting and fishing and wilderness management community have reignited that love of wilderness and wildness. I was especially impressed with episode 72, American Wilderness, which highlights how important wilderness is to our national identity and heritage. And that wilderness as untouched lands, in quote, untouched, is somewhat of a myth. We tend to these lands to manage them and maintain their wilderness character. I'm reminded of something I read by Michael Pollan regarding wilderness. In his essay, The Idea of a Garden, from his book Second Nature, he addresses this idea of wilderness where he writes, this is Michael Pollan writing, at this point in history, after humans have left their stamp on virtually every corner of the earth, doing nothing is frequently a poor recipe for wilderness. He goes on to say, Pollen goes on to, to write, the inescapable fact is that if we want wilderness here, we will have to choose which wilderness we want, an idea that is inimical, inimical, to the wilderness ethic. Interesting bit of follow-up. You guys don't agree? I so what this gentleman is... Wilderness don't happen by accident anymore. And your idea of... I guess he, he's arguing the purity of wilderness. Yeah, that it's a managed landscape. Yeah. Yeah. In our country's history, I think we like... For a long time... We had wilderness in spite of our best efforts to get rid of it. And now we have some because of our best efforts to preserve it. Uh, yeah, that switch well happened like around 1900. You know, it was around 1900. We like worked and worked and worked and worked and worked to, to, to conquer it. And then we had this like awkward transitional period. And then we worked and worked and worked and worked and worked to hang on to some of it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Can't can't cut a road up there, or I cut a road up there, and the avalanches keep knocking the thing down. So we're just not going to go up there. Yeah, made a choice to just quit going up there. Yeah, cutting it. Here's from a guy named Richard. Now this one really struck a nerve with Yanni. This guy's saying this. I've been hunting for the last seven years and yet to close the deal on a deer. So seven years this feller's been at it. I never grew up hunting, but have always been interested in it. I took up archery and rifle hunting when I turned 30. My first year archery hunting, I had a spike come in at five yards, but buck fever was so bad I could barely pull in time. Second year, I had a bad shot on a doe at 25 yards. I was crushed and then wanted to quit after that. So I, I gather he crippled up a doe and never found her. I moved to Idaho a couple years ago, so right in your backyard, Cal. Yesterday, I missed a deer at 200 yards. My elk season starts on Wednesday, and I'm having serious doubts as to whether I'm going to be able to do this. At what point do I call it good and just accept that I'm not good at it? 
I hate that I have spent countless hours and time and money pursuing this with very little to show for it outside of rabbits. I think if I quit without getting a deer elk, it's going to bug me. My hunting buddies think I'm being too hard on myself. But am I? You said in one of your podcasts that you would quit hunting if it was no longer fun and there was no meat. I think I'm at that point. Not sure what should I do. Should I press on? Richard. No meat and no fun. <laughs> That'd be a good t-shirt. No meat and no fun. That is a great t-shirt. <clears throat> like my daughter says, she says, well, yeah, we won't have a meal to eat, but we'll have a story. Sounds like Richard's got a lot of stories. Are you truly not having fun, though? Like, I mean, I've had some misery. Everybody here is, yeah, my God, the misery we could pass on to people if that were possible. But there was always something that comes out of that trip. Seven years? Yeah, I know. It's a hell of a dry spell. Seven years. Yeah, but you know, I mean, I, there's so many places to go with this. He's a, he's a better human because of those seven years spent. And look, he doesn't say how many days of field per season he spent. I'm sorry, but Richard might only be hunting a couple, three days. You know, maybe he needs to put in a month of archery hunting and then see where his luck stands, you know? Um I mean, you can, like, national averages, I haven't looked in a few years, but, you know, the majority of the hunting population is getting a long weekend at the most is what gets recorded. So, you know, if this guy's getting out during archery and rifle season, he, you know, it could be a week total, let's say. And yeah, or maybe he's, he's hunted 14 days in his life. Yeah. Yeah, so... Yeah, the years doesn't really... That doesn't really work that well. And I think he's only... You know, if he kills one this year on his eighth year, he'd be just a little bit less than, like, the national success rate, right? Because, I mean, yeah. we hover somewhere between, like, 10 and 30%, depending on if it's archery or, you know... You mean uh, for general over-the-counter? Yeah, success. Yeah. I'm going to come at it more practically. I think that, like... I think that the guy just kind of got to have, he needs a little bit of, I think you should stick with it. I think he needs a little bit of success. I think the way to find that success, I don't know how he's sort of gauging what he's after, but I just have a real hard time thinking that in the state he lives in, if he goes out and carves out a week of time to go out with his rifle and he's committed to shooting a legal deer, he's going to go spend seven days out in a general unit and and get a nice less than 100 shot, yard shot at a forky deer with his rifle that he's not going to be able to do that. I agree. I don't care if you just I don't care what you know. If you can learn how to shoot at 100 yards and hit and just walk around in the woods. And you have in mind that you find the legal deer, a good shot at a legal deer and give yourself 7 days, I don't think you're going to come up empty-handed. Yeah, I mean that that may be generous. I I think uh our friend Richard is probably like right at that cusp of doing one thing and being like, "Holy shit. It's that easy. It's all going to click." Yeah. Stick with it. Yeah, I really don't I don't know, man. 
Definitely. Plus the whole idea of quitting, I just don't really get the whole quitting. Like, I'm not, I, I, I quit one thing one time where I was always curious about chess and my nephew sat down to explain chess to me and after about 15 minutes, I was like, never mind. Because once I knew that it would take that much just to be sucky, right, I didn't want to get involved in it. I thought it was like a little more complicated than checkers, right? Sure. But once I was like, oh, that's what chess is? Just never mind. Because I'm not going to, this isn't something I'm just going to toy with. I'm either going to do it or not do it. And I see now that I am not going to, like, I'm not going to devote, like, I don't have the time to figure this out to the degree that I would want to figure it out if I were to start dabbling. Right. And and you're thinking that to you, your fun comes when you're at least proficient at something. Yes. Like, I right. like to play sneaky, snacky squirrel with my kids. <laughs> I have, I'm able to play at a highly competitive level. Right, and I have it dialed, so it's enjoyable to me. But chess wasn't going to be like sneaky, snaggy squirrel. So we so try to get all the acorns. Yeah, I, I guess I am very biased here, but I I don't under if I guess you got to ask if you are truly not having fun, which I just don't see as as an actual possibility, unless this seven years have just been fraught with some series of you know, god-awful and unfortunate events. Uh, went into the woods, house burned down. <laughs> went into the woods, dog died. <laughs> went into the woods, Broke wife my leg. Left. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if you are truly not having fun, yeah, find yourself a different sport, Yeah, but. if you're like, you're out there and the sun's rising and you're like, ugh, sunrise. I hate seeing those. Yeah, I hate nature. Who needs that? Damn birds chirping. Yeah, you should probably quit. <laughs> but I don't, that's not what he wouldn't be writing in if that was the case. Here's the thing, too, just as an inspirational point, I'll show. Um, I had a very bad pumpkin year in my garden. It's 2016 will go down as a bad pumpkin year. I came out of that wanting to become a pumpkin enthusiast. I've been reading up on how to grow world record pumpkins. So I'm taking like loss and failure and turning it into becoming a pumpkin enthusiast. I'm not writing letters to people about quitting growing pumpkins. Yeah, you're on the I had some break, stolen. Bro. The ones I did have were so small they were ridiculed by my wife and children. They went out and bought other pumpkins. Oh, that is a to bad, carve. bad year. Like the pumpkins weren't good enough for them. <laughs> We ate one. <laughs> okay. Our episode with Whit Fosberg, episode 90, I think it was 90, really touched nerve. I'm going to read three pieces of feedback about this episode. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited Photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay, it's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, 
You can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season... It was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized I didn't drink anything all day, and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick. It's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code meat eater at checkout that's 20 percent off your first order when you shop better hydration today using promo code meat eater at liquidiv.com hey man after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers if you've learned anything it's that there is always a catch so when i heard that for a limited time all mint mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited-time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Maybe. Yeah, I'm going to read three pieces of feedback. Here's one. Here's one version of a way to take that. What it was is Whit Fosberg from Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership reached out to us or not, what am I saying, reached out to us, came on the show, and we did sort of a walk around the country looking at leading conservation issues around the country that affect hunters and anglers and fish and wildlife, or affect affect hunters and anglers through their impacts on fish and wildlife. And then talked about a couple other like perennial conservation issues that just never really go away. One guy says this to say, 
Thank you very much for it, guys. I love the wonky conservation talk, and he was very knowledgeable. Thank you for the work that you do with this podcast. Here's where it gets interesting. I'm not a hunter. I am a very stereotypically liberal person and a city planner. But this podcast has helped me become better informed. And now I actively support the hunters in my community. There's one way to take that. Here's another way to take it. Really enjoy your podcast. I find it informative and interesting. I like the hunting stories, which are the best part of hunting. The historical info, like the history of the elk on Kodiak, on the Kodiak archipelago. And scientific information your guests have on the environment and animal species that inhabit those environments. Your podcast is a great diversion from the current news of the day. He goes on to say some other very kind things. Um, goes on to have an observation about feeling, uh, you know, pressures being uh, that, that are on hunting and wildlife. And it goes on to, here's where he airs his grievance. This guy's named Vance. Um, and goes on to have some very valid arguments. And I, and I feel his frustrations where he says, as usual, I noticed you had a new podcast today, episode 90. So I did my work. I plugged in the earbuds and started listening. I heard a person talk about a lot of various stats and facts on past and current game numbers and making sure access to public lands stay open, et cetera. Then over and over again, I heard this person repeat leftist talking points with no rebuttal from you. Once this person made the statement that the U.S. should not have withdrawn from the Paris Climate Accord, I had heard enough and ended my listening session. This told me this person was either foolish slash delusional or simply a hardcore unabashed leftist. With no rebuttal from you, I have to assume you basically agree with this wolf in sheep's clothing. I obviously do not personally know Mr. Fosberg. I'm simply forming an opinion based on his own words. If these are the type of people you support, by which I guess he means if I would support a person who has a personal opinion about that it was a mistake to withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord, then I will move on. It makes your podcast into another immediate media attack on people like me. Just be warned that a leftist like this guy, when the time comes, will cut the throats of hunters everywhere, given the chance. Um, a couple thoughts there. One, Vance, really, like, really going to stop listening. That is heartbreaking to me. If I stopped listening to everyone that said something I didn't agree with, I wouldn't listen and talk to you, Cal, you, Yanni, or my wife, or my kids. There would be no one at all I would listen to, and I would just have to separate myself from everyone I know. Put your head in a hole in the ground. Put my head in the hole in the ground, because it is unavoidable that you will find a way to only hear things you agree with. So I just feel like you should reconsider if you're out there and you're apparently not, I feel like you should reconsider. Um, the other part of it, and I see this quite often, where I find that like you'll have a guy like Whit Fosberg who devotes his life 
to hunting and fishing. So that's what he did growing up. That's what he does now. He's devoted his life to hunting and fishing and was inspired by his love of hunting and fishing to advocate on behalf of fish and wildlife. And there's like this thing that happens, this sort of movement that happens. Often you hear it's like the green decoy thing or whatever, where it's like people go like, oh, if you have some viewpoints that are regarded as like a liberal viewpoint, then you don't really actually like hunting and fishing, even though that's all you've done your whole life. And even though your career is based on hunting and fishing, you don't actually like it. And you will cut the throat of hunters and fishermen first chance you get. It's like as though looking for the enemies of hunting and fishing, you have identified the people who like it most to be the one who would like betray. Whereas a guy that hunts and fishes and doesn't give a rat's ass about fish and wildlife habitat is somehow more trustworthy. Like I, like I, I don't understand the perspective. I understand um, what it's like to be annoyed by someone's viewpoint. Like if I'm talking to someone and they're telling me how they think that under no circumstances should there be capital punishment, for instance, and I'm like, man, dude, I totally disagree. I don't then be like, and you know what? I disagree, and you're going to be the guy that turns your back on hunters and fishermen. I just like, I don't see, I, I don't see the correlation. Yeah, you know, something I like to bring up with that is that uh, um, we hear that a lot about who, that these people would do this, and you would think if, that, if this is like a real thing, that maybe over the course of history, over the course of hunters being conservationists, we would have like an example where these people could be like, yeah, Remember so and so? That some bitch. He hunted and fished his whole life. He was just baiting the trap. Just baiting the trap, <laughs> and then he did it. He did this whatever. Cut the you know? throats of hunting and yeah. fishing guys. However, however he did it, you know, with some legislation or some rule or law or who knows what. But yeah, if you have an example of that, please. Yeah, e- that would be bad because I'd like to understand it better. Um. And, you know, and we flirt around with political discussions all the time. And the reason politics makes me uneasy is because I'm 50% real conservative and 50% real liberal, depending on what part of things I'm looking at. So I'm like completely alienated by politics. There's virtually no politician that I respect um, because I'll, no matter what, disagree with half the stuff out of their mouth. Uh, now... Here's another guy who said something. Here's the, here's the kind of letter I really like. Here's a guy saying where Wit was wrong about something. So thank you for writing in. He says, enjoyed the last show as I do every episode. Keep up the good work. But Wit Fosberg was incorrect when he said hunting is permitted in Maine Woods and Waters National Monument. So, so the Katahdin National Monument. I think that's how you pronounce it. Is that how you pronounce it, Cal? Uh, Katahdin. Katahdin. You know, it's like one of those annoying names where you're like, no, it's Sherry. Yeah. Tells yeah. me. Yeah. Stefan, <laughs> not Steve. So he goes on to say it is, in fact, prohibited in the majority. A small portion on the east side of the Penobscot River, I believe. Now, I went and checked on a map today, and this guy's right. The bulk of that monument, you can't hunt. There's a handful of blocks east of that river that you can hunt. So we were wrong. He says, as a registered Maine guide, I strongly oppose this. He goes on to say, I'm very supportive of conservation and preservation efforts with regard to this landscape. 
He says, his opinion, the timber industry has decimated the forests of Maine. I say this as a former logger, maybe a future logger again. But as a hunter, I am deeply troubled by the loss of hunting access to this large area, especially when it provided the type of remote experience which is steadily disappearing in the Northeast. For this reason alone, the monument does not have my support. On this issue, Ryan Zinke and I agree. Please correct this error and make hunters aware of this law, of the loss of this once great opportunity. We cannot stand to lose many more such areas. This guy's named Bill. Bill, I totally agree with you, man. In any case, in any possible scenario, hunting and fishing, in my opinion, hunting and fishing should be allowed on national monuments. Only, not only, because I believe in extending hunting and fishing access wherever possible, just as a, as a rule, but particularly with national monuments, because why deprive the, this is like the side thing, why deprive the monument of that level of engagement from the public? The best buddies you can have, the best buddies you can have when it comes to wildlife management and land management is the hunting and fishing crowd. Stay on their good side. You will have, right now we're having this big national debate about the legitimacy of monuments. When having that argument and fighting that fight, you should have hunters and fishermen on your side. What was Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument before it was a national monument? That's not the place that was... A collection of public lands. Oh, Uh, uh, I believe there's a huge private inholding too. Oh, is there? Isn't this the uh, Burt's Beeswax story? I don't know. Trying to find out more quickly. Yep. Yeah. Well, this fella's calling it a loss. Yanni, keep checking in as we go. We'll return to this idea in a minute. I hate to think that it jumped into this unprepared, but I'm just doing mail. We talked about this guy quitting hunting. Oh, here's a good one. Ready for this, Callahan? Yes, sir. This brings up two points you wanted to bring up or tease them up. This guy says, hey, I was just listening to this podcast and you were speaking about certain species of fish you need to bleed and others you don't. You brought up the fact that most of the species you bleed are red meat fishes. I believe the reason you bleed some species and not others is because of the types of muscles they possess. White flesh fish such as walleye and perch have muscle compositions of primarily anaerobic muscle because of the burst of motion swimming style they employ. Meaning, fish lays in the bottom, kind of chills, sees something he wants to eat, busts ass over there and grabs it real fast then goes back and chills out like anaerobic bursts of energy salmon on the contrary possess primarily aerobic muscles because they participate in sustained swimming yeah like a salmon doesn't go lay on the bottom in the ocean he's like a pelagic fish cruising around all the time this guy goes on to say the aerobic muscles require higher rates of respiration which need a greater blood supply to the muscles I'm not positive about this, but the correlation seems to be great and the theories seem to be backed by what I have learned in my collegiate classes. Just food for thought. Now, this aerobic anaerobic muscle thing is interesting because if you look at like, think of game birds, all the game birds, you know, waterfowl, upland, 
Which ones have white flesh breasts and which ones have dark flesh breasts? Cal? Yeah, well, pheasants, right? The ditch chicken. That's white a flesh. classic white, white meat bird. Chills out and has an occasional explosive flight. Rough grouse. Chills, occasional explosive flight. Dark meat. Not dark, dark. Uh, uh, Not like a goose. All those upland birds are kind of in this category. That Ptarmigan. We're talking. A little darker. Definitely it's a darker. spectrum. It's a spectrum. Sure. But it's... Little I mean, dark. Ptarmigan are a little darker. No difference in behavior. Yeah, but what I'm talking about is this. I'm talking about upland but to talk about and water aerobic, anaerobic. Waterfowl. Right? Oh, yeah. So okay. waterfowl. Snow goose breast. Very dark. This guy will get up, and he's going to cover hundreds of miles in a single flight. Sustained flight. Dark, dark meat. Yes. And think about a wild turkey. Where's the dark meat on a wild turkey? Uh, on the legs. Yeah. Yeah. Up on his feet, wandering around all the time. Yeah. White breasts. Short bursts of flight. Yeah. Now, it didn't. Now, here's a weird deal. You look at a sage grouse. I think on a sage grouse, his thighs are lighter than his breast. So I don't think it's a universal principle, but it is interesting. And just to bring it back around to the fish thing, I think that there's something to it. I have, like, grown up fishing freshwater in the Great Lakes, right? I never once met a guy who bleeds walleye or bleeds perch or bleeds bluegill. Yeah. You know, and then most guy, anyone that knows anything bleeds salmon. And you and I ripped a couple gills on uh, rockfish just because. Just out of habit. And there's no ba- nothing happens. You know what my brother said? I was asking my brother Danny, who's a fisheries biologist, about that. A rockfish has such a slow metabolism. That's what, has yes. such a slow, uh, sorry, has such a slow, uh, 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 like slow, low flow blood flow. Yeah. That when you bleed them, it doesn't force any blood out. Yeah, super small heart moves very slow. Yeah, because they're living to be 120 years old. You know, there's an idea about animals that's kind of like roughly is like a heart is good for so many beats. You have a finite amount of beats? Yeah, because you want to like, 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 like how long is a mouse? Like what's a mouse's heart rate? And how, like mammals, okay? What, like what's a mouse's heart rate? Very high. And how long does it live? Very short. Uh, very <laughs> low lifespan. Yeah. yeah. So there's this idea that like a heart's good for so long, how long you live is like how long it's going to take you to suck up the heartbeat. The, how long is it going to take you to, to use up your allotted quantity of heartbeats? And then it winds up being kind of interesting when you look at heart rates and life expectancy of different mammals. And our, our friend here is getting an extra beat every now and again. Yeah, and Yanni's burning through it even faster because of his problem. No, yeah, I mean, that's what I was telling you guys today, that the people that suffer from that severe ventricle tachycardia, <laughs> might be pronouncing that wrong, but uh, that that's like, that's the, the bad symptom of it, is that your heart's doing too much work that it shouldn't be doing, and it's going to wear out faster, sooner. Yeah. Do you want to talk meat? 
Yeah, can I do another meat one? Yeah. yeah. Oh, and I, we can come back to the Skatadin thing too if you guys want. Oh, to you got quick. some more info? Well, I can just read you like a real quick paragraph, paraphrase paragraph from Wikipedia on the history of it. Please. So we could at least know. So Roxanne Quimby, co-founder of, like Cal said, Burt's Bees. Uh, Burt's be- Bees, the guy that sells like uh, soaps and whatnot? Yeah, okay. chapstick stuff. Began purchasing land near Baxter State Park in 2001 before formally announcing their plans in 2011 that the land would one day become part of a national park. But there was state and federal opposition to those, to those plans, and so they changed the focus to doing a national monument, uh, which could just happen through uh, the Antiquities Act and the proclamation by a president. So they did that on, um, well, on August 20, 2016, they donated land valued at $60 million plus $20 million in additional funds for operations and then a commitment of $20 more million in future support to the federal government so they could keep the thing going. So then August 24th, August, sorry, August 24th, 2016, Obama proclaimed 87,563 acres of land as the Catadin Woods and Waters National Monument. So, so it was like that that's deal. That's how it came only to be. beef with, uh, what was his name, Bruce? Can't remember. With with, with with you know him writing in that it, it, they bought it up, so they didn't buy it from the state. So it well, wasn't then that this, totally like that totally negates. Yeah. See, it's such a confusing world. Man. This is the monument issue is incredibly confusing, and and the issue from my perspective is always that each one is much more of an individual versus, uh, let's say, a wilderness, right? People have a basic understanding of wilderness, uh, probably because of the name. They're like, oh, yeah, it's a wild like what, place. Like what flies and what doesn't fly. And what flies and what doesn't fly, right? M- most folks who go outdoors can be like, oh, yeah, wilderness, I think you can't ride your bike in there. Is, and you can't operate heavy machinery. Which you can't have a chainsaw. virtually true. Virtually true. <laughs> You're right. Um, the monuments... Uh, Gosh, man, I I have no excuse not to be fully up to date on this story, but I believe uh, because of the nature of you're going from uh, private land uh, acquired by the federal government, um, that came with some strings attached. Yeah, I'm sure. So that may, all right, damn it. Yeah, damn it. Should should have been more well-read on this one. Well, Sorry you know what? I, you know, I could go in. I have the power to go in and make it that this conversation never happened and that the letter never came. You're just going through your mail. But I'm not going to because I'm just going to leave it open to the fact that, like, um, it's a tricky, complicated world out there. You know, so, the yeah, so, 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 so you the gentleman that wrote it. in, yeah, check that out, man. Maybe the feller... The, the bee guy that bought up all the land, whoever used to own it was like, come one, come all, hunt and fish all you want. So maybe that's what's going on. Yeah, it's it's possible. I'd, um, there are ways uh, to uh, make some changes. Like, let's walk through this one as a, just to explain. Like a way that a public land thing can become public. We haven't talked about Sabinosa. Am I saying it right? Sabinosa. Okay, now, in New Mexico, you have a wilderness area that was completely landlocked. And landlocked is? Yeah, and landlocked means we had a a federally managed, publicly owned wilderness area 
that you couldn't get to because any road there was no road access to it. There was no way to walk into it without crossing private property. So the wilderness area was basically a playground for anyone who happened to own adjoining land. There was no legal way for you to like park your car and walk into the wilderness. And because it's wilderness and you can't fly in and land a helicopter, there was no way to get there. Yeah, unless you wanted to pay uh, an access fee or uh, perhaps go in with uh, an outfitter that was operating off of one of those private holdings. Gotcha. Um, so you could pay your way in. You could pay your way in, but think of... Man, if it, it was those cut are, off to the working stiff, it it was cut off to the working stiff, and what in think of the incentive to keep that stuff locked up if oh, you're dude. a landowner, you get an extra, ultimately twenty thousand acres. Yeah, it's like I own a hundred acres, but actually I own twenty one thousand one hundred acres because only me and a select few neighbors can get into this block, this chunk of land. So a guy, this is a cool story that just happened. A guy owns one of the, there's a guy that owns one of these ranches that borders the wilderness area, the Sabinosa wilderness area, he owns one of these ranches and his ranch is a bridge, is a bridge between this wilderness area that the public owns but can't access and the road. And a public easement, yeah. He comes to the federal government and says, I'd like to give you guys this ranch. I would like to donate this ranch to the American people so that the American people can access their piece of land that they're now not able to get at. It took a little wrangling and Senators Udall and Heinrich from New Mexico got involved in helping to orchestrate this deal. And Interior Secretary Zinke got involved in how to orchestrate this deal, and it just became official. Yes. The ranch is now the property of the American people, managed for them by the federal government, and it is now a access point and trailhead to go into the Sabinosa Wilderness Area. Yeah, I believe it's managed by the BLM, is, who's in, in charge of that uh, wilderness there. I was just hunting a patch of ground not long ago and there's a lot of like equipment and shit laying around out in the mountains mm-hmm. and a buddy of mine was telling me he's like dude this used to all be private it was purchased by the rocky mountain elk foundation willing seller willing buyer it went up for sale rocky mountain elk foundation took donor money which is what the, kind of their specialty they took donor money bought the whole damn place and handed it over to the blm to manage I didn't even know this. I've been hunting on it and didn't even know that it was like an RMEF purchase to become public land. Public land has, there's like some complicated stories there, man. Very complicated, yeah. And, and unfortunately, on whatever side of this, um, whether you'd like to see everything privatized or everything public, you can tell a pretty convincing story on either side because nothing's totally black and white yeah there's a guy i want to have on the podcast that i've been reading up on lately who um uh his deal is that public land doesn't really exist his deal that like public land basically 
any public land that was traditionally grazed by livestock people is basically like a collaborative ownership between the grazer and the government, and there's no real such thing as public land as we understand it now. He thinks it's all a sham. And it, is this coming out of the basis of... Like, he comes out of the ag industry. Oh, okay. But it's not like a land has no value until it is cultivated type of thought Yeah, process. that kind of... I think, he, I think he comes out of that angle. Okay. I'd like, I want to get... I want to ha- contact him and have him on. Um, you know, I, like, I, I, like, even if he's right, I don't really care, right? I don't, like, like if someone said, you know what, I've looked and looked and looked, and it turns out that uh, you should be able to enslave other individuals. I've, I've studied the Constitution, and it turns out if you read it the right way, the way I interpret it, you, there's no problem with you going over to your neighbor and enslaving him at gunpoint. It's legal. I wouldn't be like, oh, okay, sweet. I'm going to go and, and enslave my neighbor now. Right, like I don't really care because it would still be. It's just like you know what I mean. But it'd be a great conversation. I still find still be like, well, yeah, it might be true, but I'm not going to do that. Right, but I still like to talk to the guy. Uh, that uh, Sabanosa, there's a bunch of groups involved in that, and uh, I gotta go down there and and uh, kind of take a quick tour of the place when uh, Zinky visited, and and uh, it's sweet country in there. So you had a look Oh, yeah. Yeah, had a look Now, did you go down there? Were you, like, in the company of uh, the various political figures who were gathered down there? Yes. Yep. Yeah, so I, I was invited down through, you know, really a bunch of mutual f- friends, uh, all of us, um, and uh, the National Wildlife Federation, New Mexico chapter, um, has been a big part of that. Um, backcountry hunters and anglers. Um, uh, so so many groups at that point because it had been going on for over 10 years um, that uh, I really shouldn't be listing anybody because lots of, lots of folks involved. But really, Udall, Heinrich, the county commissioners, BLM, um, they've really made it happen. So. Yeah. Yeah, but gorgeous country, uh, Audab, uh, invasive species, but uh, cool, cheap country in there. Uh, big elk, big mule deer. Uh, one of the uh, volunteers kind of took me aside, and they're like, hey, here, you're a mule deer guy. Oh, really? Yeah, check this out. I was like, oh, my goodness. So, One of New Mexico's senators, Heinrich, who was involved in this, while he was a senator, he went in to... Uh, what national forest was he hunting in? What's the big name brand one that everybody we hunted it before? The Gila. Yeah, I'm sorry, just kidding. Yeah, one of New Mexico senators, while a senator went into the Gila on a on a permit draw muzzleloader hunt and killed a bull out with a muzzleloader. Bad country. He is an end user, which is damn rare. Yeah, not many dudes in the Senate. Paul Ryan likes to hunt a lot. I don't know. I don't really know what all hunting Paul Ryan does, but I know Paul Ryan. Likes to hunt a lot. Um, Tim, it's important. Heinrich likes to hunt. Yeah, yeah. And he, Paul it, Ryan is a big bow hunter. Really? Yeah, big time. Wow. I don't know how much time he has for it now. So that guy, that guy spends a lot of time sorting situations out. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> Sounds like his neighborhood's pretty tough. Yeah. I'd like to talk to him sometime about hunting. And yeah, and, and Heinrich likes it a bunch. No. Just started listening to the podcast, going backwards through them. That's cool. 
He's on the fish shack and, uh, episode. No, okay, never mind all that. The guy's a sushi chef, and he wanted to comment on something. We were talking about salmon, making sushi and sashimi from your salmon, and how it's hard to get it the way that, the, that it is in a sushi restaurant. Yeah, and we were also talking about how most people won't do it with the coho that we had caught and that we were doing it with, right? Yep. And we were like, is it not the way... Yeah. We're like, is it not the way it is in a sushi restaurant because of what something we're doing or is it because it's a coho and you'll never get it to be right? Mm-hmm. And we, After, felt, we felt like I had gotten a pretty good slice on it. It, it looked good. The presentation was nice. Just wasn't the same. It was a little different. But I'll point out. I'll point this out too as a prelude to this guy's comment. Um, salmon have a high parasite load, and this is no joke. Like I used to, usually stuff like this. People start talking about food safety and all this. I usually brush a lot of that off, and I and I pay the price for it. But I usually brush all that <laughs> stuff off. But it's no joke. Salmon. If you're eating raw salmon, you need to freeze that salmon and thaw it out, then eat it raw. And this comes from a guy who's eating pounds of it, not done that way. But I've had a lot of people who are not hysterical and who are not skies falling kind of folk who have said, bro, you got to freeze it. You'll get sick. It's real. Oh, yeah. I think I've been on the flip side of that coin. Anyways, this brother is saying this, and this is a great tip. I just, I called my damn brother to tell him this. This guy's name's Kaido. It's a nickname. He's a chef and hunter from Michigan. He says, here's where you boys are screwing up. <laughs> you need to take a salmon. This is for making sushi and sashimi out of salmon. You need to take that thing and cover it in kosher salt for eight minutes. Absolutely no longer than 10 minutes. Pack it in salt in order to pull the extra water out. Then freeze it. Then slice it. What he's saying is this. When you freeze that thing, the water expands. The cell walls burst. Because water comes out. That's why when you vacuum seal a piece of salmon, right? you vacuum seal a piece of salmon, there's no water in there. Any fish. Whatever, whatever, halibut, whatever. You vacuum seal it, there's no water in there. Put it in your freezer, thaw it. There's a few tablespoons of water in there. Like, where'd that come from? It's being liberated from the fish through the freezing process and it leads to a mushy quality product he's saying you got to suck a bunch of that water up out of there by packing it in salt pull some of the extra water out and that is what gives you that firm buttery what he describes as the amazing buttery texture mm. i can taste yeah, it yeah what i have one that. question about it though is that after you take it out of the salt yes do you just absolutely you rinse it rinse it right yes because you're never gonna you, i mean how are you gonna brush it off and i'm gonna say if he says it skin filet also you think i'm i would my guess would be kaido can he have to rewrite in now he yeah i'm, I'm guessing that he's that he's got to be skinless filet. No, I don't know. I don't know. I can see you both ways. Kaido, right back in, dude. Uh, <laughs> we need this. We'll pick this back up. You skinning <laughs> it or not skinning it? And rinsing. But I'm going to, listen, I think he's on to something. I know exactly what that son of gun is talking about. Oh, Cal, what was the two things you were going to bring up? Oh, uh, this is just from having questions. your ear to the railroad tracks. So yeah, exactly. Uh, dry aging or just aging meat. 
Is it necessary? Does it actually make a difference? Um, yep. <laughs> my experience, if I think it's always better to let things relax for as long as you can stand it. At least 24 hours. I'm going to butt in at least 24 hours because that's how long I've read it takes for the rigor mortis to enter and then leave. Yeah. However, I've done it immediately to several hours after just based on what's happening in life and it's not like that's me. That is not good as far as the aging goes. You mean like aging at a couple hours doesn't matter? Like, it's not like that's meat that I then think is not any good. Oh. No. It, well, maybe I don't, maybe I don't, yeah, I don't understand so, what you're saying, Cal. Um, it, uh, it's not like don't even go through the trouble if you can't hang the thing in your garage for 20 days. I'm, <laughs> I'm tracking now. Yeah, sorry about that. Still edible. Still edible. Still probably real good. Depends on the animal. Yes. But in general, think of it in extremes. Think of it in extremes. If you shoot something and butcher it and you're eating it an hour later, it has a metallic taste and it is very tough because it's still in rigor. Yeah. And for me, almost, it almost gives me not really like a belly ache, but sort of a, like a gurgly, just kind of an off stomach. Whatever it is that is going on in there, it seems like, and again, it could be just uh, random occurrences. But yeah, unless I, you had two of you, yeah, you would. You'll never know. Never know. If you had but, two but exact like use. When I eat meats, it's too fresh. I just get a. I don't get sick, but I'm just like, ah, oh, man, something just wasn't quite right yeah. with that. I'll but, definitely eat it, but it's not as. That's the thing. It's not as good. Then do you need to have a climate-controlled situation? I've never personally no, had never, one. You never have that. Um, so, but I, I'm always afraid to answer people's questions on that. I'm like, I God, am I going to make kind, somebody? I sick? age all kinds of ways. Well, let me let me tell you how my brother ages me. So, so he he lives in Alaska. Um, he's doing a lot of his hunting in September. If anyone's been up in Alaska in September, um, you have cold nights, very warm days. Everything's all wet. There's flies everywhere. Meat bees are on everything. It is not conducive to like yard hanging. It's not conducive to garage hanging. All you do in Alaska is beat flies off stuff, right? It's just you're not gonna hang. It just it doesn't work out. September hunting in Alaska, aging meat like in your garage isn't gonna happen. No, unless you built a cooler and you could rig up some little dorm fridge, but you're not gonna hang a moose in there. Mm-mm. So he. When timing out his wild meat calendar, he doesn't think like, oh, I got to have last year's moose and caribou all eaten up by September 1st because then I'll have my new moose and my new caribou and I'll start eating them. He times it where he wants to have last year's all eaten up at some point in the winter because his moose has been freezer aging. Which I believe in. That's yes. the thing. And some people be like, freezer agent, what do you mean? Well, hey. Stuff deteriorates in a freezer. It just takes a long time to do it. You will never pull out 
a two-year – you'll never pull out. Let's say it's 2017 and you find a piece of meat from 2015 in your freezer, you will never find a tough piece of meat that's two years old in your freezer. Well, I think the same thing is happening to that meat that the guy just explained is happening to that fish. Yeah, it's breaking down. Yeah, the, you know, because the water molecules are there and freezing, it's breaking down the, like the, you know, on the, like the molecular structure, you know? And, yeah, so, and the longer just, it's in there, the more it happens. And things just slowly break down. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the problem when you find mammoths coming out of the permafrost. Well, unless you have one of those freezers that's... Uh, the, uh, what's that crazy ice cream? I think it's called Dippin' Dots. It's got, I've got an uncle who sells it at a, uh, or it's, his, it's my wife's uncle. He sells Dippin' Dots at an amusement park that he owns. And they, when they started, when they became a purveyor of Dippin' Dots, they had to have a special freezer that doesn't just stop at zero. It's like negative 30 or negative 40 because there's such high fat content in this dipping Dots that if you just free hold it at zero or 32, it's, not, it's, it's gonna go bad real fast, right? So he's got a special freezer that goes down to negative 30 or negative 40, right? Just for this ice cream. Well, he's like, yeah, side bonus of that is I was able to throw a few elk steaks in there and five years later, still good. Sure. My deep freeze, I'm looking, at, I'm looking at the thing right now. My deep freeze runs at negative 15, which is quite a bit colder than my kitchen. Do you have it maxed out? Mm-hmm. I'm going to start doing that. Yeah. I was trying to find like the efficiency level, but I'm going to quit. I got a lot of fish in there, man, and I like yeah. to keep my fish cold. Now, I do some other aging stuff. When possible. What is too old? Too cold? The, no, too old in your freezer. I personally I don't have never things looked go. at something and been like, Nope, I'm going to throw it away. I just I physically cannot do it. No, my system doesn't allow for things to get anywhere near the point at which I would call them into question. But I could say that my brother Matt once found some seven-year-old elk meat in a freezer and enjoyed it. Yeah. Not his elk, mind you. He found it in a freezer. I've never had a and problem stole it. with... And the, the oldest stuff I've always eaten has been elk just because when I was living in Colorado, it's like everybody had elk in their freezer and oftentimes we'd be at someone's house and they'd go, oh, look at that, you know, and you'd end up with some three or four-year-old elk. Never had a problem with that. But I do think that fish, oh, you can get there. Dude. Like, oh, for instance, last night we ate the last package of Blue Cat from... Uh, this yeah. is from uh, Kentucky, and that was Didn't taste like a coming year right out and a half river. ago. Yeah, it was still good. It was edible. We enjoyed it, but yeah, it wasn't quite the same. I, my, like, I was saying how I keep fish in my big deep freeze. I high prioritize fish. So my peak fish for me, peak fish in the freezer for me is August, late July, August, where I'm at my cabin a lot, fishing a lot, in a lot of salmon and halibut whatnot. Dude, around now, I'm very much like looking to be having that stuff getting wrapped up. In fact, I'll be, I think I pulled out my last salmon and just smoked it. I saved one piece, I think. Because I do not, because freezers don't stop activity. Yes. I've had big chunks of bear fat. I've froze big chunks of bear fat, fixing to render it later, and had bear fat actually go rancid in a freezer. Yeah. Uh, the fat. Question number two on this is call fat. Now, that's something Sorry, you guys have hit. Hold uh, on, did we just blow a fuse? Um, no, I think that your freezer just uh, just turned off. But not like off-off. It just turned off as in... Oh, it was it just was, kicking off. Oh, you gave me a look. I thought we blew the fuse. 
Yeah. Oh, sorry. We'll have to pick that back up. Go ahead, Cal. Uh, call fat. Well, that's the other issue you want to bring up. Can I, can I touch on something more about aging? Oh, yeah, for sure. I also age... Here's, again, I can't tell you like, the scientific proof of any of this stuff, but this is based on a shitload of anecdotal evidence and experience and, and observations of trusted close friends. I will also pull a piece of meat out of my freezer. Let's say on a Sunday I might thaw a block of meat out. I'll then rinse it, thaw it, rinse it, pat it dry with paper towels, put a big roast on a rack set over a dish, and put that in my fridge, knowing that I'm going to cook it in five or six days. So here it's already been butchered, frozen, thawed, and now I'm doing a fridge age on it, mm-hmm. which I feel like is helpful. I think you can, because you asked, can you age too long, right? Yeah. We were hanging out with a chef, and we actually tried some of his meat, and after we carved through many layers of really inedible stuff. 18-month age. Is that what it was? It was 18 months. Yeah. And, um, and, this, and this was in a, you know, uh, um, climate, climate hum- controlled. Temp, temp yeah. and humidity controlled environment. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't that the meat was bad. It was it taste, tasty. It was way different, you know. It's just not like you're eating a deer steak anymore. But uh, there was so much loss due to drying right. that you're kind of like, all right, well, now I have like 10% of this meat left to He eat. found the too long. Yeah, he found it too long. But the point is you can go a long time without going too long. But when you're cutting open, it was an odd ed shoulder. Mm-hmm. When you're cutting open the clod on an odd ed shoulder in order to get a piece of meat the size of a Tenderly. about as thick as a Jolly Rancher, it's like you've lost a lot. Yeah. From from And then so mule deer, uh, I just I butchered uh the mule deer that I I got the end of October and then I butchered two front shoulders uh, just the quarters um, uh, that uh, Scott Robinson got uh, about 10 days earlier and this was just on Saturday and the difference in the front shoulders um, just that 10 day difference between so my, mine hung 25 days his hung 35 days um the shanks on his i was you know kills me to leave any meat in there but they're they had reduced so substantially it for most folks it probably wouldn't be worth digging out that sliver of good meat so i've seen tenderloins uh just vanish oh yeah from hanging too long my old man tells me that when he was young younger they would hang deer until it had inches of mold on it i don't know if he was exaggerating inches he said it'd be covered in mold and you'd cut that away and eat the meat off from underneath it and do you think those were whole deer yeah they had to have been right deer now we one time hung we one time hung a calf elk and never froze it just ate it and that thing after hanging it was like the perfect winter in the garage and after a while, you could jab your finger into the meat. I mean, like, you could literally burrow your finger into the meat that got that tender. Wow. Which is perfect conditions. Below, a little bit below freezing at night, not much above freezing during the daytime. We just ate the whole sun bitch hanging there. Yeah, because, you know, the feeling on, on these, um, you know, some 
majority below freezing nights, um, you know, basically what you're describing. But, you know, that those uh, hindquarters were still, they weren't like frozen hard to the touch, but you wouldn't call them soft. Yeah. I killed a bull in Kentucky, a bull elk in Kentucky. And because we were leaving from there to go to somewhere else to hunt, I had to have it processed. And the processor says, oh, I hang him for 10 days. And he hung that elk for 10 days. And those sons of bitches were still tough. Hmm. It was only later I threw him in the freezer and forgot about him for a few months and started snacking on him. And they were good. Yeah. All right, but you wanted to bring up call fat? Yeah, call fat. Uh, I, I know the, you know the show, obviously, has covered it because you guys have used it in some cooking specials. and Done it in some cooking, done it in a lot of social media pictures. Yeah. Uh, I got interested in it because when I was working on my book where I was talking a lot about Escoffier, the great, you know, famous master chef, French master chef Auguste Escoffier, who, ha- who comes up, who's brought, they bring him up in the movie Apocalypse Now. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life aura frames are beautiful wi-fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos these things are super cool as a gift especially if you got mom aunt grandma whoever you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to okay it's easy to upload and share photos via the aura app and if you're giving an aura as a gift You can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. Born in 2003 in Knoxville, Tennessee, Sport Dog was forged by a passionate group of hunters and dog trainers who intimately understood the challenges of the field and the special connection between 
hunters and their dogs. The sport dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product sport dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. Now, I've got two good buddies with what I would call really, really good waterfowl dogs. And here's one of those buddies, Max. Not the dog, but the buddy. I've used that sport dog collar now in multiple different states, U.S. and Canada. Different temperatures all the way to negative 20 degrees, and it just doesn't stop working. I'm a fan for life. Get 20% off your first purchase using code MEATEATER. So go to www.sportdog.com slash MEATEATER to learn more. You know, when when uh, Captain Willard and Chef get off the boat. Find a mango. To find a mango and get attacked by a tiger. And Chef is like, never get off the boat. Never get off the boat. He is explaining to Captain Willard that he studied sauces. He was a saucier in culinary arts school in New Orleans and mentions the Scoffier. It's a beautiful movie. Oh, dude, best movie ever made. The best movie ever made. So anyhow, call fat. So, uh, oh, no, no, quick. I got interested yeah. in it because Scofier cooks with it. Uh, like sausages and stuff like that. Wraps, like the same way you'd use a turkey bag now or whatever, just mm. wraps steaks and roasts and other stuff okay. in call fat to prevent moisture loss and add fat. So I'm doing uh, this this coming weekend, I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to smoke... I think, or just try to slow roast. I I brought out that mule deer I got this year. I brought out the neck hole, which we lead into a CWD conversation, but I'm sure these folks will be fine. Uh, And I'm going to wrap that in the call fat is the plan. And I got, it is, this is like super, this thing has not started to rut. It's like super thick call fat. Um, but the, the main questions are how do you get the call fat out, um, in one piece? Uh, is it worth cleaning? Is it worth dealing with? I don't like the taste of deer fat. I personally like the taste of deer fat. I just think it's got to be next to nuclear hot Mm -hmm. in order (laughs) because as soon as it cools down, it is like uh, paraffin wax. Yeah. It's like that Simpsons where Homer drinks candle wax in order to better compete in a hot pepper eating contest. That is exactly uh, you cannot get that off. Your tongue, your teeth. Yeah, but when it's hot, I'll eat it. So, um Yeah, call fat. Get it out. How to get it out? How to get it out? You going to tell them? I think you should. You're the, you're the expert. Uh well, Yanni, I heard Yanni explaining this to someone the other day and Yanni was explaining only even begin to think about it when your shot is forward of the diaphragm mm-hmm. it's got to be where everything's clean it's like you open up you, you, your shot enters and exits forward of the diaphragm doesn't matter where but somewhere forward of the diaphragm because you don't want any everything's got to be all nicey nice in there and, yeah, when and that you, brings up a point too so you're going to obviously gut it to get the call fat when you go to gut it and don't like don't get all the way through your gutting to the point where you're cutting the trachea and yanking the guts out. At that point, you're too late. You're going to get blood all over the call fat. You're going to roll it out into the dirt and the grass. You need to just open the lower half 
like from the you know uh, diaphragm down. You're treating this as yeah. an autopsy. Open, not. open that up, and then say, "Okay, now I'm going to take the time to get my call fat." Yeah, you can't butcher like they do in the the Mel Gibson movie Apocalypto. Didn't oh. see it, or like how they butcher in the movie Red Dawn. In movies, in movies, when someone goes to butcher, got something. People that would definitely know better, like in the case of Apocalypto, it was the the Mayan hunters. Um. Or in the case of Red Dawn, it was lifelong hunters who were trained up in the ways of Jed Smith. But when people want someone to butcher something in the movie, they like to use a big knife and have people jab stuff because it's dramatic. They don't show what we, how you'd actually do it, which is surgical. Surgical. Like I said, you're performing a, a nice, clean autopsy. Yeah. I, when I first started dealing with TV folks, they'd be disappointed when they saw how you what a knife you'd actually use you'd be like they'd be like oh <laughs> but could you do it with a machete they're yeah. just like remember that oh, crocodile dundee guy yeah like really you do it with that little teeny thing all slow and easy you don't just stab it so um yeah you shoot it everything's forward of the diaphragm so there's no mess it's laying on its back this doesn't work with the gutless method um you unzip it very carefully first just cut through the hide all the way up and then lift the abdominal lining or the abdominal muscles cut those open all the way up before you cut the diaphragm back you should open it up and just everything is wrapped up in lace fat or call fat it's just this spider web cobweb looking membrane of fat that is a literally a sack around the, the guts yeah the sack around the guts and on a good animal in good condition, it's like, holy shit, there's a lot of fat in there. On a bad animal, and not a bad animal, but an animal in poor physical condition who's exhausted his fat reserves, it's, just, it's like non-existent. It's like really a thing. It's like a way they store fat. Agreed. But it's fun to mess with. So Because we're always talking about it. And it like, part of why I like it is it's cool looking. It's fun. It's cool looking. It's interesting. It's a throwback to a bygone era when people used it more often. It's a good history lesson. It's a good anatomy lesson. Um, but anyways, I'm always talking about it. I'm always like kind of celebrating it. And it has like really appealing visual qualities. And people are like, dude, I need to get some call fat. But I'll point out, it's like, it's a fun, interesting, educational thing to mess with. But it's, it's tallowy. Right? Yeah, so is it worth it? It's fun to mess around with. Yes. yes. I am looking at this call fat as... It's going to be super pretty. Beautiful. And it's providing a bunch of lubricant to meat that doesn't have it. For and a little membrane. Yeah, and, and, it, and it's going to be a, a relatively long cook on a big chunk of meat. So Absolutely. Yeah, any thoughts? Um, yeah. Because you got pinned down on this, you were saying, at Thanksgiving this year, yeah. right? Yeah. I got pinned down about it in the airport the other day. By a stranger. Yeah, and to that, I want to say that, look, man, I think we're still, maybe we've done it more than the average Joe, but we're still kind of beginners with the whole call fat thing too, and I think we're learning. Because like that dish you did when we were on a fog neck, right? We chopped up a bunch of... Um, Guts. Yeah, we had some tenderloin in there too, and yeah, heart. Kidney. Liver. Guts. And then we wrapped it in call fat and roasted it over the open fire. Well, we used like... 
you know, four square feet of call fat to wrap up two pounds of meat. Whoa. It was too much call fat, right? If you had to do it again, would you do it with less But fat? I did it because it just makes it stronger, stronger, stronger. But yeah. yeah. But so, I, so my point is that we're like learning. And I think we're going to learn like different things to do with it and proper amounts and sort of like the way to cook with it and, you know, high heat, low heat, da, 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 da. And, you know, maybe you roast in your neck over three hours in it. We're going to, you know, yeah. well, I'm sure we'll learn something yeah. from it. Side note, how did you guys do on the kidneys? I have not. I have not nailed that. I think that they're good when they're better on younger animals True. by far. Like, like I've gotten to the point where if it, like an old deer, do you notice deer's like old? I don't mess with the liver because the liver's so strong. Mm-hmm. I like it on young animals. And then if you look in like any cookbook that's talking about like cooking with kidneys, they're insistent on young animals. So okay. People eat lamb, like lamb kidney. We shot a lamb in New Zealand. They have feral sheep in New Zealand. We shot a lamb in New Zealand. Holy shit. Lungs, kidneys, everything is so good. Liver. But they just get stronger. I think the older deer have a stronger liver. You know, it's funny because it's just like rediscovering what we already knew. When we were kids, we like pulled the livers out of deer, but Jerry's like fawn liver. When you shot a six-month-old deer in the fall, it was like that liver was the money. Gotcha. And it's true. Older deer, my mom would soak the liver in lemon juice. To try to pull some of the fungation out of it. Do we cover, cover the call fat? Call fat's covered. Oh, I want to add another Escoffier thing. And I did this when I was working on my book about Escoffier. I did it with a wild pig bladder. Escoffier would take bladders and rinse it out and then soak it in a little bit of a vinegar solution. Then you take a little game bird a squab like a flightless street pigeon or game birds or any kind of thing and take all kinds of good stuff to eat like chop up onion garlic mushroom other stuff like make like a mirepoix carrot and put a game bird inside the bladder and pack all that 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 mirepoix like pack that around it all that sauteed carrot mushroom onion garlic all that stuff and just pack it all the way around there and tie the bladder shut. And then just put that bladder with the bird living inside of it, poach it in broth. And the bladder turns like a rainbow color. And you just keep po- you're poaching the bird at a low temperature inside a bladder. And then eventually when it's time to eat, you snip open the bladder and take out the bird and all that stuff that you were cooking inside that bladder. Sounds delicious. And it's just like a way that you were, he was like, because they weren't, you know, in his time, you weren't dealing with like synthetic liners and stuff. You're just using, looking for like, in that case, you're looking for a non a non permeable membrane. And it's he like the black. original sous vide. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. No. Yeah. Exactly. That's Absolutely. what he was using. In the in the absence of sous vide bags, he was using bladders. And I cook birds that way. It's fun. They're beautiful. You've tried it? Oh, dude, yeah, They're really great. Wrote a whole cool. damn book about it. Oh yeah, haute cuisine. <laughs> now. Here's a guy, Yanni was talking about um, carrying combat gauze. Yeah. Which is something used for like catastrophic injuries, combat gauze. When you're just dealing with a bl- like a accidental gunshot injury. Severe puncture. Hit yourself wildly with an axe. Yanni, we were talking about uh, how you put it over the wound. And an EMT who's dealt with a number of gunshot wounds in his day fellow named nate 
wrote in to be like, no, 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 no. You got it all wrong. And he sends us a video about how to apply combat gauze. You pack, pack the wound channel full of combat gauze. The video, which is on a rubber fake arm, is disturbing. Yeah. He's packing the rubber <laughs> fake arm wound. And it makes you feel nauseous. Yeah, you feel woozy from Did watching he, it. He produced his own video? No. no. It's, oh, okay. It's like a how a, to a use demo video. combat gauze. He's like, dude, video. put it yeah. over. It doesn't do shit. You pack. Jam it in there. Jam it in there. So you tell your buddy, bite this stick. Make people watch that video before they go in the woods. Yeah, bite, chew on this stick while I pack your wound full of gauze. That's why that hatchet is. Well, I'm going to take another stick and jam your wound full of gauze with a stick. No, my finger with your fingers that have latex gloves probably be the right thing to do. I would use a stick. (laughs) I would get a sharp (laughs) stick and jam it full of gauze. So there's that. Ready for this one? Bring it. Positive or negative? Neither. All right. Vexing. Started hunting four years ago. It's a fellow named Zach. I've only had the chance to hunt two of those deer seasons. Now, I understand all the legal stuff behind harvesting a doe. However, the ethics behind taking a doe that is around six months old has me in doubt. I had a chance to take a younger doe and pass in her before I felt like she was too young. Am I overthinking this? How do you view the ethics of harvesting legal but clearly young animals? You're overthinking it, (laughs) but you can really think on it because it's a recruitment, right? If you look at it, the young ones are the youngs that are are the animals that are likely the most likely to not make it through the winter. So quite possibly, you could be taking an animal that will very well die. Yeah. So if you look at it from that perspective, that's like a free doe. It's better than removing a proven breeder. Correct. Yeah, definitely. Your big does are the ones that were, are most likely going to make it through the winter. It's a uh, anthropomorphism yep. problem. Yes, it is. It's anthropomorphism at, at its best. If you look at it from a food perspective, you don't get that much body weight. Yeah, Yeah. there's not as much meat. And that's why I like to shoot big bucks. You know what they say? Big racks, big meat. (laughs) (laughs) But, yes. Yeah, no, I got a couple problems with shooting the young one. It doesn't have anything to do with her not having, like, or or him having, uh, you know, enjoyed a full life. It's uh, one, yeah, you get like a, a white-tailed doe fawn. I mean, you're looking at 20 pounds? 20 pounds. Maybe yield? Well, yeah, 30 pounds of yield maybe. I mean, yeah. It depends on it's how late in the, you know, there's a big difference yeah. in the, you know, September 15th and November 15th. Yeah, but it it's, could be half of if you shot a, uh, you know, a year-old doe. Oh, yeah, man. And then, too, the, uh, you know, those young animals are just so mild. People, some people like that, though. Yeah. They don't like yeah. any flavor. Yeah. If you like skinless chicken breasts, then, you know, six-month-old white-tailed does are for you. Germans, man, we right. learned this. They want to buy, when they buy red deer out of Scotland, they want to buy ruddy stags. 
They well, like them. Same thing with those. They boars like them high. Texas. They like them high. Is what they call it. Remember the boars out of Texas. Yep. So he's saying too, they get exported. Yeah. The stuff Americans don't want to touch. Yeah. Some areas in Europe, that's like, yeah, send us all the ruddy old boars. We like them high, flavorful. The old mule deer buck is, I mean, I gave away 60% of the elk I shot this year, and I'm not giving away any of the mule deer buck I shot this year. It's too good. Oh, yeah. Uh, from the deer's perspective, it doesn't matter. Like, a, a five-year-old buck isn't going to be like, ah, just shoot me. I don't care anymore. It's like, from the deer's perspective, you're, you're killing him. He's dead. Right, they want to live. Like, there's no yeah. Question. They're like they're not trying. To, a young one's not like oh, in the prime of my life or just getting started in life. Like it doesn't really matter. Where, where I think it comes from, where the where the prejudice against or where the idea that you shouldn't shoot fawns or does comes from, is you have to sort of step back and look at the history of wildlife, or in, in this case, the history of deer management in this country. Where in the early late 1800s, early 1900s, we had like wiped out white-tailed deer in a lot of areas and it was a long road to recover the species and bring it back to huntable numbers we were able to keep hunting deer during the recovery because we just harvested bucks so anyone who grew up where you like your tag was good for like a buck was because you were trying to you were harvesting deer shooting deer to eat and shooting deer for whatever um while still growing the population. Because when you shoot a buck, you're, just, you're removing one animal from the pool. And as long as you have enough bucks left to make sure all the does get bred, you're fine. The key was saving your breeding age does. Because if you shoot a buck, you're removing a deer from the population. When you kill a doe, you're killing her and every fawn she will ever have. So once we got to recovery with deer and we got to where we've had by some estimations, too many deer. And we started to say, man, now we got the opposite problem. Now we got too many deer and they're causing a lot of conflicts with agricultural producers and car insurers and people who have landscaping. And, you know, we now have an obligation to lower, to lessen deer numbers and also to, to control spread of disease and all kinds of other issues why you might want to cut your deer population back. We started to say, hey guys, the whole not shooting doe thing, well, never mind. Now we're killing does. We're trying to lower deer numbers. Then there's been a lot of resistance to that. It still hangs on in some areas. It does. It, it, it's different growing up in, I mean, you talk about it a lot, right? Like all of a sudden you went from Michigan to Montana and it was like, I can kill how many deer? Yeah. Like, I mean, um, it, when I first started rifle antelope hunting, I th- I mean, I'd shoot five a year, I think. We used to go out, when me and my brother would head out antelope hunt, we'd have six tags in our pocket. Two buck tags, four doe tags. Eat three tags per. Right. And then that big winter kill happened, and those days are over. Right. In that area. Um, and then, yes, you know, same. You could pick up, you could, the law really is you can shoot a total of seven deer in Montana. So one buck... Uh, there are some additional t- buck tags now, but uh, and then uh, six does. Well, in the southeast, there's a lot of states you can kill a deer a day, two deer a day. Yeah. Or no limit on deer. Yeah, or you carry the same tag around for the whole season. 
Doug in in Wisconsin, Doug Dern, he still has he still has people in his community here like they just will not shoot a doe. They'll shoot every buck they ever lay their eyes on. Yeah. But they won't shoot a doe. Just because of growing up. But like Doug, when he was growing up, when he was a little kid, if you saw a deer track, you went home and told your mom and dad about it. It's amazing. Now they got 50 deer per square mile on good habitat. So, yeah, I think this is, uh, yeah, it's more of a, it's your personal ethics uh, out there, and it's just you, so do what you feel good about. But the, um, you know, those those tags exist for a reason. It's part of the management plan. Yeah. If you have faith in your state fish and game agency, and state fish and game agencies are not infallible, but I um, am taking all things you considered and, and looking at all the alternative options. Um, right now I can say that like a good, if you want to be an ethical hunter, a good starting place is to follow the rules as set forth by your state fish and game agency. And if their teams of biologists have made a determination that you're not going to be hurting anything by shooting a doe and you might be helping something by shooting a doe, I wouldn't, and you want to shoot a doe, and that's in line with your personal plan. I wouldn't let any kind of other noise come in and influence your decision. I think we diverged a little bit. Because no. really, the question really was about the, the age of that doe. Oh, you know, yeah, but I said that. I said, no, we touched on that and a lot, whole lot more. Yeah. I said they don't get like more wanting to get shot as they get older. Yeah. You know, like doe's never going to be like, oh, bro. Uh, last year I would have run away, but now, you know, I'm two. But so to here, wrap it up, there are no ethics about shooting young animals. There's no, there's no like ethical issue about shooting young deer or young squirrels. Yeah. Do you ever met anybody who says, oh, I'm not going to shoot a young squirrel? <laughs> no. Never That's happened. just something that never happens. <laughs> and in pheasants, it's like people get excited about shooting the older pheasant, but the younger ones are good. Yes, the older ones, holy smokes! But I, I definitely age those them. birds too. Yeah, you got to cook them, but it's still cool when you shoot a real old one. Really cool. But as far as table fare, the youngsters, yes. birds of the year, bird of the year, born that spring. All right, I still got a giant stack of mail here in my hand, but I, I, uh, Kelly, we, f- we should do another loose end sometime. That was fun. Dude, we got limitless loose ends. A lot of questions. Yeah. Good stuff. I love the audience, man. We got the best audience in the world. Yeah. We did a a post on the First Light Facebook page uh, last year that I really had been meaning to write it, like a follow-up thank you on. And it was kind of on one of the things that we tackled tonight. Like I had gotten home at 1030 at night and took all the food and trays out of my refrigerator and stuffed it full of boned out elk because there was just nothing else I could do with it at that point in the evening. And so I was just cooling it down as fast as I could, you know, 80 or 90 degrees on a basically an August elk hunt, right? And uh, took a picture of it and we put it up on our social media and um, – there were some folks out there that were livid. It was like our most highly controversial post. 
And I absolutely love that because people were just like, that's not how you treat me. And other folks are like, yeah, I've been there. Like, you got to cool it down somehow. And uh, really? it was great. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the audience. Like, From my distant awesome. position of not knowing the situation, I will tell you that that's not how you treat me. Yeah. No, it is not ideal. It yeah. is not ideal. We well, gotta improvise, especially when you're doing it yourself. You do, dude. We've had it so bad. We had to like throw meat in a creek. Yeah, and you just cringe, right? Because of bugs, flies. And then you're thinking about like sediment working its way into the meat, and just the yeah, fact it was so hot. It's like in the '80s. We were like hunting doll sheep. It's like in the '80s during the day. You can't see because all the smoke from fires burning flies on everything we just in the middle of the day it started the sun to come up we just go down and sink in the creek or go up to a snow field and bury it in the snow spend most of our time just trying to manage meat yeah not ideal some be like hey you can't throw meat in the creek but the picture would have been way worse if it was just it covered in fly eggs Ugh. yeah i love the fans and the listeners too especially uh tom habib the re- the guy that wrote the real hero email. Yep. Thanks, Tom. Oh, Yanni's an actual. But I'd love you all more if you'd take the time to subscribe and give us a rating. There's only one rating you can give. If you're going to rate the Meat Eater podcast. That would be five stars. The rightmost star. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and subscribing. To subscribing that? too, man. Subscribing yeah. is very helpful. Also, also, go follow. Um, I'm on Instagram at Steve Ranella. Follow Meat Eater TV on Instagram. That's good stuff. So all kinds of things you can do, and keep writing in letters. Um, Ryan Callahan, thank you very much. Thank you. That was fun. Your grains of wisdom. And Yanni, the real hero. I think instead of the Lab <laughs> Eagle, I'm gonna start calling him the real hero. <laughs> oh, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana. They're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit 
themeateater.com, or buy it wherever books are sold.